Today's episode of Line 1, Your Health Connection, was pre-recorded. We will not be taking phone calls or emails during the show. Hello, and welcome to Line 1, Your Health Connection. I'm your host, Dr. Jillian Woodruff. October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month, an annual campaign aimed at increasing global attention on the prevalence and impact of breast cancer, while promoting education, early detection, and fundraising for research and support services. Current research underscores that approximately one in eight women will face a breast cancer diagnosis during their lifetime. However, the five-year relative survival rate for U.S. women with non-metastatic invasive breast cancer is greater than 90%. Over the past decade, there have been significant advancements in the diagnosis and treatment of breast cancer. These improvements have led to better survival rates, reduced treatment side effects, less invasive surgeries, and an enhanced quality of life for patients. One such expert leading the charge on improving the quality of breast cancer treatment is joining us today. Dr. Sherry Johnson is a fellowship-trained breast oncologist, surgeon, and board-certified general surgeon who works at Far North General Surgery and Surgical Oncology. She is also the Alaska State Chair for the Commission on Cancer. Dr. Johnson, welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. And I want to make our listeners aware that today's program is pre-recorded and we will not be taking calls. As always, we'd love to hear your feedback or suggestions. Please email us at line1 at alaskapublic.org. Okay, Dr. Johnson, I'm so glad that you could be here to talk about this and kick off our Breast Cancer Awareness Month. So let's learn a little bit about you. You know, the topic of breast cancer is always scary, even though breast cancer is not the leading cause of death and has a high success rate with treatment. Share with us your story. What led you to surgery? What led you to breast oncology surgery? I grew up in Anchorage. I uh, went to high school at West High. I then uh, went to North Carolina for four years of under undergraduate uh, biology degree. During my uh, bachelor's in biology, I decided I wanted to uh, go into medicine. And so at that time, I wasn't thinking surgery or breast cancer. But I, uh, I applied for medical school, got in, and at the beginning of medical school, I assumed I was going to be a primary care physician, family medicine, maybe pediatrics, maybe OBGYN. Um, I really liked the idea of, of preventing and uh, doing... Um, yeah, prevention. I feel prevention. like we all kind of feel like that yeah. when we start medical school. It's one of those... I think it's our, you know, save the world, and we want to be able to help as many people as we can with a great fund of knowledge, right? Right. Well, in medical school, your third and fourth years, you're, you spend a month in each specialty. And so when I rotated as my third-year medical student in, in surgery, in general surgery, I loved it. I loved being able to do quick fixes. I loved being in the operating room. I loved being able to cut out pathology from people. So I applied for general surgery residency. And I was in, and that was five additional years uh, in Michigan. And throughout the course of my general surgery training, I then fell in love with breast cancer patients and breast cancer. Breast cancer is a, usually it is an early stage breast cancer that's curable. And you're treating these people in the most vulnerable points in their life. And it's very fulfilling to do. So you're really doing life-saving surgery and you're getting that 
sometimes it can be immediate gratification of taking care of a cancerous tumor, removing it, and seeing someone survive. Yes, exactly. That's pretty amazing. I will say of medical school, spending time with the surgical oncologist, and they were just, it was a general surgery rotation, was a highlight of medical school because they were the nicest people. And the patients were really great because, of course, you know, they're at a vulnerable moment. Um, but the ability to educate in that time was was so great as well. Mm-hmm. So that was pretty cool. Okay, so then you went on to your breast um, it was a breast surgery fellowship after your general surgery training. So are there different types of breast surgery fellowships? And, and do you need to be fellowship trained in breast surgical oncology to practice breast surgical oncology? Fellowships are uh, additional specialty training in whatever specialty you decide to go into. You can have fellowships in breast, in plastic surgery, in colorectal surgery, in in several other different types of specialties. For breast surgical oncology, um, the United States uh, uses a a governing body called the Society of Surgical Oncology, and it's a one-year additional training after your five years of general surgery residency, and you get additional training in breast imaging, more advanced breast surgical techniques, genetics, medical oncology, plastic surgery, radiation oncology, survivorship, and high risk. And so while I may have touched on that in general surgery residency, it certainly wasn't a focus. Just in general surgery residency, I was taught how to do a lumpectomy or a mastectomy, but I had no idea how to do a nipple-sparing mastectomy or or talk to patients and give them a multidisciplinary you know, cancer care discussions and, and guide them on what their next step to treatments will be. So a fellowship gave me the additional training to do that. Well, well, you discussed this multidisciplinary team. So you have a newly diagnosed breast cancer patient. They need you as the breast surgeon, but they also need a whole network of others that are prepared to care for them. Can you tell us about who else would be included on that team? So typically, once a patient is diagnosed with breast cancer, the first person that they see after their diagnosis is a, is a breast surgical oncologist. And then we spend, uh, I spend time talking to them about what this is, we're staging it for them, and then based on what type of cancer they have, we, we need to either send them to medical oncology, and that can be for chemotherapy or, or anti-estrogen pills, we also can send them to radiation oncology for there are certain types of breast cancers and breast cancer surgeries that need radiation oncology. Many patients are sent to for the genetic counselors for genetic testing. Breast imagers play a big role in this multidisciplinary cancer team because oftentimes we need additional breast imaging prior to the surgery so we can do some surgical staging for them. And so uh, in, the, in the last part is pathology, of course, is, is, a, is an important part of our multidisciplinary cancer team. Right, and the pathologist would be looking at any specimen you send to say exactly what type of tissue this is, what type of cancer. Right, and sometimes after the first surgery, uh, and it's about 10 to 20% of the time, we have to take the patient back to the operating room to take some more tissue. A lot of the breast cancer is microscopic, and so that's where the pathologist comes into big play. So your role as the surgeon on this team, it could start at the very beginning as part of diagnosis and then also as part of the treatment. 
you mentioned imaging as well, and I know the imagers sometimes they are also doing diagnosis. So what is the difference between getting imaging and a diagnosis with the radiologist um, versus having a breast surgeon? Because a lot of people at that early stage, when they're not diagnosed, they may not have a breast surgeon. Sometimes patients are sent to the breast surgeon without imaging and they have a breast mass and then the breast surgeon works it up and proceeds with the diagnosis. Most often, though, the most common cause of new breast cancers comes from abnormal screening mammograms when patients aren't having any symptoms. And so when that happens, the the breast radiologists are the ones doing the biopsies, and the breast radiologists are either the ones telling the patients they have a diagnosis of cancer or they're letting the primary care physician or, or provider know that this patient has a, a new diagnosis of cancer. You need to call and tell them, and then and then the patient gets their appropriate referrals. And so, oftentimes in those initial conversations, they're not they they're just told they have the diagnosis of breast cancer, and it's not explained to them how it's early stage, how this is likely curable, how you know they have to jump through some hoops, but that this isn't going to end their life. Right. So they need that, the information, the informative parts. They may just have a little bit of worry as they're getting their diagnosis and needing to put together all these pieces and get this team. So when they come to see you, are you able to set them up with the team that they would need to take care of? Yes. Them? So, yeah, part of that first appointment is is sending all their referrals off. And so usually within a few weeks of diagnosis, patient has seen me, they've seen the medical oncologist if needed, they've seen the radiation oncologist, they've got genetics testing, they've got plus or minus maybe more breast imaging, and and then they're ready for either surgery or potentially chemotherapy. How common is it for you to see someone for a a breast concern and to be the first person to start up the whole workup? Is that pretty common or? No, I'd say it's probably less than 10% of the time. Most Mm -hmm. of the time the patient knows why they're coming to see me. They may not know much about what they're diagnosed with, but they know they have a breast cancer. Okay. Well, speaking of breast cancer, as we are today, it's extremely complex, and there's several different types of breast cancer and molecular subtypes and so many things. Can you maybe give us a straightforward explanation of what breast cancer is and the most common types? Sure. Well, basic cancer definition is a disease that causes uh, cells to divide uncontrollably and spread into surrounding tissues. So cancer is caused by changes to DNA, and most cancer-causing DNA changes occur in sections of the DNAs called genes. It's a very complicated process. There's multiple avenues of, of genetic mutations. Um, and some examples can include a DNA change that causes genes involved in normal cell growth to turn into oncogenes. And unlike normal genes, these genes cannot turn themselves off, mm. and then they, called, they cause uncontrolled cell growth. Another example is there are tumor suppressor genes in normal cells, and those prevent cancer or stop or cell growth. You know, there, if there's a DNA change that stops the tumor suppressor gene, that leads to uncontrolled cell growth. Your immune system can attack and, and fight these cancer cells, but some of these cancer cells are advanced to where they can avoid the immune system detection. So some of the cancer treatments include immunotherapies, chemotherapies that I can't do as a surgeon uh, that, that uh, can better detect and kill the cancer cells. 
As far as the, the genes, why, why the genes uh, become abnormal, you know, about 5 to 10% of patients is hereditary, including genetic mutations. Other, other issues can come from environmental exposures, UV radiation, smoking, chemicals, viruses, uh, any errors that occur as cells divide. <clears throat> One of the other things that happens as a person ages, there, there's more mistakes as the cells divide, and that's why breast cancer happens most commonly in the 60s. So UV radiation, I'm definitely someone that wears their sunscreen. And, you know, we think about sunscreen and uh, the UV radiation of, as leading to skin cancer. So this is something we need to think about in another way as well. It's not necessarily just skin cancer. Well, UV radiation is mostly for skin for skin cancer, uh, that's just kind of like a basic uh, all can the, mm -hmm. the reason for all cancer, and so what happens in breast cancer, you know, just being female and having breasts alone automatically gives you about a twelve to thirteen percent lifetime risk of breast cancer. One in eight women, as you said earlier, and so all of those things that can happen in your your genes uh, can happen in your breast. There's a lot of breast cells that can that have high turnover rates and there can be abnormalities that happen in the breast in the breast. Oh. Well yes, one in eight women being diagnosed with breast cancer is daunting. Uh, but the survival rates have also increased. Why do you think that less women or it seems that less women are dying from breast cancer? Now we're trying to focus more on on thriving after breast cancer. Right. So the Female breast cancer death rate peaked in about 1989 uh, in the United States and then declined by uh, close to 40 percent to 2020. And the reasons for that is because screening mammograms uh, became um, more of a standard of care. There was more breast screening. There was more awareness. There was more um, attention paid to signs and symptoms where patients were getting their their breast masses or their nipple retractions checked out. Uh, in addition, there's been a lot of advancements in breast cancer therapies and targeted therapies to where an advanced cancer 30 years ago might have a over a 90% survival rate now because of the certain chemotherapies and immunotherapies we have. Mm. Well, in mammograms, we, we, I'm going to have you talk to us about some screening, but I know in the world of gynecology, when we started doing pap smears, our rates of cervical cancer decreased you know, significantly to one of the lowest rates of cervical cancer in the world, right? So with mammograms, and that's probably part of the reason why the rates have decreased of breast cancer, but there's more hesitation to getting the mammograms than there are to getting your pap smear. So what are the current recommendations? Because there's some competing societies that at times have had different recommendations. Where, um, what should we look at? I, I think that's pretty confusing for people to know what to do. Uh, and so I'm assuming that the American Cancer Society is a, a very good place to look for cancer screening guidelines. What do you follow? So there are several different screening guidelines, and it has been very confusing, uh, especially to primary care physicians, OBGYNs. And so I follow the American Society of Breast Surgeons and the American College of Radiation, and that recommends annual screening mammograms beginning at age 40 for women of average risk. Average risk means the patient uh, 
doesn't have a strong family history of breast cancer, and uh, they're not having they've never had biopsies before that show precancerous cells. And so um, for for my practice, it's forty annually. There are other governing bodies such as the United States Preventative Task Force who recommend women who are 50 to get a screening mammogram every two years and for women who are 40 to talk to their doctors about it. American Cancer Society says women between 40 and 44 should have the option to start screaming, screening and women 45 should get mammograms every year. Same, same thing, women, the American College of Obstetricians mm-hmm. and Gynecologists say every 40 years, recommended every one to two years. So it is worth noting, though, that uh, the demographic of American women in the 40 to 49-year-old category has grown approximately by 10 million since mm. the 80s and 90s, and that most of this, most of the, all the guidelines advocate for access to screening mammography at the age of 40. That's right. 40. Well, yes, I, I am by the belief that you should have it yearly after 40 for average. And that means we're all average unless we're unless we're not, unless we're high risk. And hopefully you do know your risk. And we can talk about that. We are going to have radiologists on at some point. So they'll let them speak specifically to um, radiation. We're not going to forget that. But I do want to talk to you about um, thermography, because that is something that's really big now, um, especially for those that can't afford it. They would prefer to go and do a thermogram using heat as opposed to doing the mammogram, which uses radiation. And can you talk to us about your opinion on thermograms and whether that should be used for screening? And, and we should mention when you're thinking about screening and in developing all of these screening regimens, it is not just what is most likely to diagnose a breast cancer. They're taking so many things into account. You mentioned access. Does everyone have access to this screening? Cost is also a big factor in developing a screening regimen. Is this something that is affordable for the country to be able to to do? So it's not necessarily this is the always the the best way, but all of those things are taken into account. So, yeah. So thermography. So first of all, I, I do not recommend. Okay, and uh, but thermography uh, uses a infrared camera to detect temperature differences uh, within the breast tissue. Um, during the screening, the machine never touches your body, unlike a mammogram where it has some compression and that can be painful. The thermogram shows hot spots that uh, appear red to surrounding tissue that appears yellow, green, or blue. I often get patients with abnormal thermogram results, and when they send me pictures of the thermograms, there's just pic- there's just colors all over the breast. There's red, there's green, there's yellows, there's oranges and blues, and it's it's very hard to to figure out and localize if there's even a problem. And so anything that is even causing an inflammatory response from the body to show up on the, on the thermogram, that can show up as hot and be abnormal. So thermography devices have been cleared by the FDA as an adjunctive tool to screening mammogram, not as a replacement. And so patients who use a thermography test should not be reassured of the findings because the device is not cleared for for breast screening. Uh, And the FDA is not aware of any evidence that supports the claims that thermography can find breast cancers year before. So anytime a patient comes to me, even with an abnormal thermogram, 
the images cannot be interpreted well, and we're sent, I send them for diagnostic imaging, diagnostic mammograms and ultrasounds. And I've seen that as the follow-up is that they go for a mammogram. So anything abnormal, they go for a mammogram. I also, and I don't know if you're aware of like the false positive rate, is there a really high false positive rate that they're sending a lot of people for mammograms? Yes. Okay. Yes. Yep. All right. So anything that shows up, they'll, they'll, any, any sort of, you know, blip on the, on the colors, they'll send for additional imaging. And they might not necessarily have any problem at all. Correct. So that's going to be increasing a lot of worry and anxiety as well. Right. And then even if the screening mammogram after an abnormal thermogram is incorrect, the patients are, are concerned because they've had some sort of abnormal results. And now that results in, you know, getting that thermogram in the first place now results in more imaging, more follow-up, more surveillance. More cost. Uh, more cost. Yeah. Well, it, we have to take our first break, but when we come back, we're going to talk about something else that's on the mammogram report often. That's the dense breast tissue. So let's take another break, uh, or our first break, actually. You are listening to Line One, Your Health Connection. A reminder for our listeners that this is a pre recorded show and we will not be receiving calls today. After this short break, we will continue our discussion of breast cancer and breast surgery with Dr. Sherry Johnson as Line One continues statewide. You're listening to Line One from Alaska Public Media. You can find Line One on alaskapublic.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Quality child care creates futures for families, children, and the state's economy. When children are safe, engaged, and learning, parents can work and everyone has a better outcome. Thread has resources to support your family in their childcare search. Knowing what to look for in a licensed facility is important for the safety of your children. Thread also offers parenting resources and support. To learn more about quality childcare in Alaska, visit threadalaska.org. This message sponsored by Thread. Today's episode of Line 1, Your Health Connection, was pre-recorded. We will not be taking phone calls or emails during the show. Welcome back to Line 1, Your Health Connection on Alaska Public Media. I'm your host, Dr. Jillian Woodruff. I'm joined by our expert, Dr. Sherry Johnson, who is a fellowship-trained breast oncology surgeon and board-certified general surgeon in Anchorage at Far North General Surgery and Surgical Oncology. Again, I'd like to remind our listeners that this is a pre-recorded show, so we will not be taking calls today, but please email us any thoughts or suggestions at line1 at alaskapublic.org. So before the break, we were talking about mammograms, and I definitely want to get into something else that I see at the bottom of many mammogram reports, and that's a statement about dense breast tissue. So can you explain how breast density is determined and what does this mean? Breast density is a subjective measurement by the radiologist. There are four categories of breast density. There are, it's, there's one that's fatty, where on the mammogram your breast tissue looks gray and your ducts and your blood vessels look white. 
Breast cancer and early cancers show up white on mammograms, so it's really easy to see that because the, the mammogram itself is not really dense. Second category is scattered density, where you just have this scattered area of white spots around the mammogram. And then the last two categories are consist of dense breasts. The third category is called heterogeneously dense, where there's dense pockets all over, and then extremely dense. And when you look at a mammogram with extremely dense breast tissue, it's almost as if there's a whiteout on the mammogram. And the problem with that is that you cannot see cancers through it. And so if you have heterogeneously or dense breasts, plus you have signs or symptoms such as a breast mass or you have a high family history of breast cancer, you need to get supplemental screening that will kind of cut through that density in order for us to catch a breast cancer early. So am I hearing this correctly, that the dense breast tissue makes it more difficult to detect the cancer with the mammogram? It's not necessarily that it's something that is increasing your risk of getting cancer, it's of diagnosing it. Correct. Oh, okay. Uh, who's more likely to have dense breasts? And does this change over time? Yeah, breast breast density is often inherited. Um, women with low BMI tend to have uh, a pretty dense breast because there's a, not a lot of fat in their breasts. Uh, women using hormone replacement therapy, estrogen, progesterones tend to have a little bit denser uh, breast tissue, but most of the time it's inherited. I've seen some, uh, you know, 95-year-old women with extremely dense breasts, and I've seen some 20-year-old women with extremely fatty breasts, both on imaging, so it can go both ways. Well, you were talking about having the dense breasts and then having also, if you also had some sort of complaint, I guess, about your breast or something palpable, then you need further imaging. It does say at the bottom to discuss with your provider whether you should have an MRI. So what if you do not have any complaints? You've just gone in for your regular screening. You have heterogeneously dense breasts. Should you have an annual MRI? And who makes that decision? It depends on the risk assessment. So oftentimes with these bigger imaging centers in town, um, the patient uh, is asked a bunch of questions, and those questions get thrown into a risk assessment. There are several different risk calculators online and risk assessments that breast radiologists and breast surgeons use. One of the most common ones that, that I was taught to use and that we use in town is called the Tyre Kuzik model version 8. And some of the things on that calculator include how old you were when you started your period, if you have a family history of breast cancer, if you've ever had a biopsy before, because you can have some precancer cells that increase your risk, and that's one of the models that include breast density. So now if you're over, so like we said, average risk for breast cancer is about 12-13%. When you get above 20% lifetime risk of breast cancer, depending on these calculators and these models, then that's when we start recommending breast MRIs. Okay. So if somebody's of average risk and they they have dense breasts, they're of average risk, they have no complaints, they don't necessarily need to go having an MRI every year. Correct. Yeah, the that's correct. Um, um, unless they're having an issue or or there is a family history of breast cancer. Our th the, the mammograms in, in Anchorage are, are very good. They're very advanced. We call them 3D tomography. It's almost, they do a scan in and out of the breaths with these little, with these little kind of slices. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, if it's average risk, their, their breasts are dense. They don't have any family history. They don't have any breast complaints. Uh, and as long as their risk assessment is being done every year at the mammogram place and it, it stay, they stay 
you know, average risk, then it's okay just to do annual screening mammograms. And so that would be important to look at that at the bottom to make sure that your, you know, mammogram report gives that, or sometimes they just send it to you in the mail. And so if you have not had that done, if you've had a mammogram where you haven't had that risk calculated, you said that there were some places online. Is that something that you should look to do? Yes. The the American Society of Breast Surgeons recommends every all women undergo their first formal risk assessment at age 25. Oh, and that's okay. not that's not mammograms. It's just a risk assessment. Risk assessment. All right. Well, aside from breast cancer, there are a number of benign breast conditions, so non-cancerous breast conditions, some that may increase the risk of getting breast cancer, and many that don't. Can you tell us about some of the most common non-cancerous breast conditions that women may experience? Yeah, so even though my primary role is breast cancer, breast surgical oncology, because I do surgery on the breast, we're often, the breast surgeons are often referred uh, the benign conditions as well. So most common benign surgical problems include um, these painful benign masses called fibroadenomas. Those are typically in younger women, and they can be uh, very painful, and um, the patient might want them removed. There can also be abnormal mammograms where the biopsies reveal uh, atypical ductal hyperplasia or atypical lobular hyperplasia. These are not cancerous lesions, but these show us that there's atypical cells in the breast, and we tend to remove those because those potentially could turn into cancer or they could be hiding some cancer. Another common one I see is intraductal papillomas, which are little papillomas inside the ducts, which can cause some some nipple discharge or some abnormal imaging. Sometimes we remove those and sometimes we don't, depending on the size of the, the papilloma, how dense their breasts are in mammogram, what their family history is, and if they're having any symptoms. Maybe we should talk a little bit about some of the warnings or, or red flags, symptoms that they may be experiencing that should cause them to go in and see a medical provider? Sure. Most breast cancer is diagnosed uh, with screening mammograms and patients are asymptomatic. Um, a lot of times if you are feeling a, a large breast mass, it's 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 probably been there several years, and it's taken several years to get to that point. And so concerning signs and s- symptoms, though, that need uh, you know quick imaging include any new breast masses, any, any change in the contour of your breast. You can have some deep breast masses that you can't actually feel the mass, but it can start to retract in the skin or retract in the nipple. All those are concerning signs that need to get checked out. Um, if there's a new rash on your nipple that needs to be evaluated uh, in nipple discharge, most nipple discharge is normal, but bloody nipple discharge is not. The most common cause of that is a benign lesion, but that needs to be looked at as well. I think that's really helpful information, actually, very helpful. So thinking about the breast exam, can you tell me about the clinical breast exam? So when people come to see me as a gynecologist each year, I'm doing the breast exam. And also telling them, you know, oh, you should do your monthly breast exam. But is this still something that they are promoting, having the patient do monthly breast exams and having them see a clinician each year as well? It's not promoted uh, as much as it used to be, the, the, the self-breast exams. Uh, a lot of women, by the time they're feeling a mass, it's it's they're pretty, they have a big mass or it's pretty late in the disease. And so this, the self-breast awareness comes in, when I talk to patients about this, 
I tell them to stand in the mirror uh, naked and take a good look at the contour of their breasts, how their breasts are shaped, how they're sitted, if their nipples are retracted, um, kind of the, the fat over the axilla or the armpits, if any of that's changed. And so when patients are doing self-breast exams, and, and they don't need to be done monthly, but when they are doing self-breast exams or if they are looking at themselves in the mirror, they can identify any changes. Okay, that's helpful. Well, let's talk about some of the risk factors for breast cancer. Talk to us about that. So risk factors for breast cancer include, of course, family history of breast cancer, um, Estrogen and progesterone uh, is a, as a combined agent. If you're taking that for over three years, that can contribute uh, to a breast cancer risk. If you take estrogen alone, that doesn't necessarily contribute to breast cancer risk, but unless, if you still have a uterus, you have to take progesterone. So anyways, combi combination hormone replacement therapy contributes to breast cancer risk. Um, being overweight, the National Comprehensive Cancer Network guidelines recommend a BMI less than 25, which is can be unreasonable for a lot of patients. Uh, however, even losing every, even 10 pounds of weight loss can start to decrease your breast cancer risk and your numbers go down. Uh, exercise, the, the National Comprehensive Cancer Guidelines also recommend uh, at least 150 week, uh, minutes per week of moderate intensity exercise and then alcohol. So uh, alcohol, any alcohol intake increases the risk of breast cancer. And one of the reasons for that is that alcohol changes uh, the way your body metabolizes estrogen and increases uh, your estrogen to rise, which can co contribute to breast cancer risk. So, so many important things that you said there, but it does... Um one interesting thing about alcohol, because nobody wants to hear that, <laughs> that you can't have any alcohol. But, you know, in Canada this year, they released their their guidance on alcohol and health. And they've also, well, actually, they are the ones that have come out to say zero amount of alcohol is safe and healthy. So that's quite a change. I don't know if we're going to get there in the United States, but they've said that it, they haven't found any of course, there's benefits and risk to everything, but when they did the benefit-risk ratio, they found that the the risk outweighs the benefit for any amount of alcohol. Um, the other thing about estrogen and progesterone, you think about um, weight, and there are so many different types of estrogen, and so that's something important to, somewhat important to know because you think about the estrogen, which is in fat cells, estrone. Is, is different than estradiol and metabolites of hormones. Some of them are maybe not, they, they're more risk-causing or more unhealthy than safer types of estrogen. So that's interesting. And I've seen some studies about estrogen and progesterone, but all the studies that they do with the progesterone have been with a progesterone we no longer use, like the medroxyprogesterone acetate, which is extremely um, high amount of progesterone, which right. is really different. I think there needs to be more studies about that. I don't know if there's, if that's going to happen. I, I agree. We have a kind of a lack of data in the medical oncology and the breast surgery oncology world about uh, the different forms of, of hormones and combination hormone replacement therapy. And so the overall recommendation, similar to Canada, is just say none. <laughs> just say no. 
<laughs> that makes me very sad, you realize. I'm yes. like a, I'm a big proponent of like get your hormones. <laughs> but really you do there's a lot to think about and just like with alcohol or anything else, you do have to look at your your the risk and what your risk is, knowing your breast cancer risk, knowing um and also because if you some of these breast cancers and we didn't get into that part are stimulated by estrogen and progesterone, right? Mm-hmm. And right. so yeah. that can progress a cancer if you have it. Yeah, it can. There are some small doses of estrogen that is acceptable in the breast oncology community. One of those includes a vaginal estrogen. There's not a whole lot of systemic absorption from that. So even a patient who has a tumor in their breast fed by estrogen we are okay with with vaginal estrogen. Thank you for saying that, Dr. Johnson. I think uh, vaginal estrogen is like you know skin care for your vagina that is lifelong. So uh, definitely, after your estrogen levels decrease, that can really save you um, a world of pain. Really, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, many celebrities have shared their stories regarding carrying these specific gene mutations that increase the risk for breast cancer. And many of us are now being tested to see if we carry some of these gene mutations. The ones we've heard about are like the BRCA1 or 2 gene mutation. So for those carrying these mutations, what's the recommended screening for them? And perhaps is there a recommended surgical intervention? It depends on what the genetic mutation is. And so there are several genetic mutations that contribute to breast cancer and, of course, other cancers. Some of the most common ones for breast cancer include, like you said, the BRCA1 and 2. Um, one of those, I'm not sure which one, Angelina Jolie had. Mm-hmm. Um, and she had she did have a prophylactic uh, uh, mastectomy from that. She didn't have any breast cancer. And there was absolutely... There was published papers in the medical literature calling this the Angelina Jolie effect because after that happened, uh, patients started having more prophylactic mastectomies depending on what their risk risk level was and uh, uh, and, uh, what their genetic uh, testing was. Some of the other common mutations include ATM, BARD1, CHECK2, PALB2, TP53s. All of these have different lifetime risks of breast cancer. So ATM has a 20 to 30% lifetime risk of breast cancer. We don't have any evidence that doing prophylactic mastectomies on them saves their life. And so that's one genetic mutation that recommends high-risk screening. High-risk screening includes annual screening mammograms alternating with MRIs or some sort of contrast breast imaging. The mutations such as BRCA or BRCA1 and 2, they have over 60% lifetime risk of breast cancers and and high ovarian cancers risks. Even BRCA1 has 39 to 58% risk of ovarian cancer and BRCA2 is 13 to 29%. And so when when these patients get these genetic testing results, we certainly talk to them about doing high-risk screening, whether it was alternating mammograms and contrast imaging or doing prophylactic mastectomies. So prophylactic mastectomy for the BRCA gene mutation is still something that is 
could be life saving. It's it's risk reduction. Yes, yeah. It, the it's never a one hundred percent risk reduction. The only way to one hundred percent reduce your risk of breast cancer is to cut off all your skin and take away your pec muscle. Oh. Uh, and so we, and we don't we don't do that anymore. And so anymore. Yeah. Oh no. <laughs> um, and so. For for now, so we do mastectomies. We save the skin, we save the the dermis and a little layer of fat with blood vessels under the skin, and that and that heals down to the muscle. We take as much breast cancer or breast tissue as we can, but there are going to be some healthy breast cells left after a mastectomy, a prophylactic mastectomy, prophylactic mastectomy with reconstruction or without, and any one of those cells can turn into a cancer down the road, and so while you've done your most aggressive option to reduce your risk of breast cancer, you still have to follow up and do exams, clinical exams. And this is the same for those who are getting mastectomy for cancer treatment. There's always, you know, most likely a little bit of breast tissue still left behind. Is it considered a negligible amount or no? There's about five to about five percent of the breast tissue, uh, you know, left behind after a mastectomy, whether it's a, a, a flat mastectomy or with reconstructions. And so it's not negligible. Um, after a mastectomies, even with reconstructions, there's not enough breast tissue to do mammograms anymore. And so if you're going to get a, a recurrence or get a new breast cancer, it's going to be just right under the skin. And uh, so that's where clinical exams come into play to feel for any nodules or ulcers or rashes or skin changes on your chest wall. If it comes to that and you have a recurrence in that area, is it more difficult to treat the recurrence than it is to treat the original? It depends on what the treatment was for the first original. There's sometimes we can't do radiation twice. Um, sometimes recurrences are more aggressive. Sometimes recurrences have different tumor biology than the first cancer. And so, uh, Plus, there's more surgery involved than the patient had in the first time. So certainly depends on the, the tumor biology. Wow. Well, we have to take one more break. But when we come back, I want to talk more about how we choose or how you choose the surgeries that are going to be performed. So let's take another short break for the stations down the line. As a reminder, today's episode is pre-recorded, and we will not be taking calls. Please share questions that you would like to see addressed with us via email at line1 at alaskapublic.org. We'll continue our discussion on breast cancer when we return. You're listening to Line One, your health connection on Alaska Public Media. You're listening to Line One from Alaska Public Media. You can find Line One on alaskapublic.org or wherever you get your podcasts. The Alaska Fisheries Development Foundation is excited to announce the 30th anniversary of the Alaska Symphony of Seafood. The call for products is out now with the deadline to enter October 7th, 2023. Additionally, the call for judges and sponsors is also live. Details can be found at afdf.org. Just click on the Alaska Symphony of Seafood tab for more information on entering and sponsoring. This message sponsored by AFDF. Today's episode of Line 1, Your Health Connection was pre-recorded. We will not be taking phone calls or emails during the show. Welcome back to Line 1, Your Health Connection on Alaska Public Media. I'm your host, Dr. Jillian Woodruff. 
I'm joined by our expert, Dr. Sherry Johnson, based here in Anchorage. She is a fellowship-trained breast surgeon, breast oncology surgeon, and board-certified general surgeon at Far North General Surgery and Surgical Oncology. Again, I'd like to remind you, our listeners, that this is a pre-recorded show and we will not be taking calls today. Dr. Johnson, we were just getting into a little bit of um, the surgery that you need for treatment. And I'd like to hear about, I think a lot of people have questions about when to perform lumpectomy versus mastectomy. I think there was a tide that that turned in, in, I think probably after Angelina Jolie, people were leaning towards mastectomy for breast cancer treatment. And now I've seen some um, papers that with some cancers, lumpectomy and breast and mastectomy it doesn't change recurrence rates. Can you explain that a little? Sure. Um, survival rates, how long you're going to live, is the same between, we call it breast conservation therapy. That means conserving the breast. So that's a lumpectomy where we're just taking the tumor out and saving the rest of the breast. So lumpectomy, partial mastectomy, breast conservation therapy, all of that means the same thing. That's compared to mastectomy where we're removing the whole breast, whether it's making you flat or you have a reconstruction. So survival rates for that are the same. What's not the same between them um, are recurrence rates. Now, this is a very small difference between them, but when you have a lumpectomy and radiation, your recurrence rate is slightly higher than a mastectomy. You have more breast tissue. However, the reason why your survival rates aren't the same is because, or your, sorry, your survival rates are the same is because we are continuing to follow you with mammograms, exams, plus or minus MRIs if you need that, and we're catching, we're catching it early enough. And again, these are single digit recurrence rates we're talking about. So we're back to screening being life-saving. So screening is is, is really key because it's catching things early, especially if somebody is getting a yearly mammogram. The thought is, is that they didn't have anything there, hopefully last year. Right. So they've only had one year of growth at yes. the most. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, patients also have worries about the cosmetic appearance of their breast, um, which maybe they don't say it at the time. You would know about that uh, because, of course, they're you know really concerned with their health and treatment of breast cancer. But a cosmetic appearance is a very valid concern. Is there a benefit for one surgery over the other cosmetically? There are some studies that show there's an improved quality of life uh, with breast conservation therapy being uh, the the lumpectomies. And so, um, and there are some studies that show that there's no difference in quality of life. And so, one of the things that we are taught in breast fellowship and of course is is the cancer the oncologic outcome comes first the cancer outcomes first but we do want to do we want to make as cosmetically acceptable choice for the patient and so when a patient has a new diagnosis of breast cancer i give them all of the surgical options between lumpectomy uh, lumpectomy plus radiation, uh, unilateral, one-sided mastectomy, bilateral mastectomies, mastectomies with or without reconstructions. Sometimes we can do reductions. And so with a new breast cancer diagnosis, the patient gets all of the choices, plus insurance has to pay for reconstruction if the patient wants to with a new breast cancer diagnosis. There's a federal law that says that. Okay. Well, when considering cosmetic uh, or reconstruction surgery, is is that something you do or is that 
the plastic surgeons who who performs that surgery? The plastic surgeons. So we we do it together. We work a lot very closely with the plastic surgeons. So oftentimes in a patient, if I can do, say, a nipple sparing mastectomy where I make an incision uh, under the breast or to the side of the areola and I'm able to spare all the skin and I'm able to spare the nipple, I take out all the breast tissue and do the the oncology part of the operation, but then plastic surgery, sometimes they can come, they follow me the same operation and they can put in an implant. Um, There are cases where we do delayed reconstructions where I just close the patient and then the patient's taken back to surgery a couple weeks later or a couple months later to get their final reconstruction. So that's an option as well. Do they have to know at the time of the original surgery whether or not they want the reconstruction? Because I know some people don't get reconstruction. They don't have to know. We can. The patient can always have a delayed reconstruction. It's a little bit harder if we've done a flat mastectomy and we've taken the skin off and trying to go back and do a reconstruction, you know, the following year, the year after. It's not impossible, but it's harder. So if some patients, if they don't know, we tend to, and they're usually pretty upfront with me about it. We tend to, I tend to leave their skin a little bit looser, or, um, or we do the avenue of going with reconstructions first, knowing it's easier to convert to a flat mastectomy down the road. And what would be the reason for doing a flat mastectomy besides the patient not wanting reconstruction? Is there another reason? Um, some patients don't like the idea of having implants or foreign things in their bodies, even. Many, many decades ago, there was uh, some uh, implant-associated lymphoma associated with a certain type of implants, but we don't use those implants anymore, and so that risk is is almost zero. Um, Some patients like like the idea of not having to wear bras anymore, um, or they just want to, you know, go without their day. They don't want to deal with any... Uh, you know, chronic issues with, with if there are chronic issues or wound healing issues with implants, potentially surveillance or implant ruptures. And so both surgeries have their pros and cons. For those that are getting reconstruction, but then they need radiation therapy, does this alter the healing or the ability to perform the reconstruction? Yeah, radiation... puts a hiccup into into the reconstructions. And so it's not impossible. Oftentimes, if we know a patient's going to get radiation ahead of time, and some tumors are large enough that we know that, or sometimes patients have positive axillary lymph nodes that we know that, we know they're going to get radiation. Sometimes we will plan for a, a delayed reconstruction where we just leave the skin loose or even potentially put in a tissue expander, which is like a balloon, other patients that we know are going to get radiation, radiation causes uh, the wounds, the incisions in the skin not to heal as well, and so there could be wound wound healing issues. Um, sometimes the plastic surgeons can do uh, autologous flaps where they take fat from your abdomen, similar to a tummy tuck, and they put it up for your breasts. And so that's another option we do for patients who need radiation. Okay, so that's if the the area was affected by the radiation, you take healthier tissue? Yes. Okay. So how is that decision of whether a person needs radiation or chemotherapy made? Does it have to do with the lymph nodes? There's there's many factors that go into those decisions. Uh, It depends on the tumor biology. So when we get a, a pathology report, 
It tells us the type of cancer, uh, for example, invasive ductal carcinoma, invasive lobular carcinoma, potentially ductal carcinoma in situ, which is a stage zero uh, non-invasive carcinoma. It tells us uh, how fast the tumor is kind of dividing, and it gives us uh, some receptor status of the tumors. So in all breast cancer cells, we check estrogen, we check progesterone, and we check a third one called HER2 new on invasive tumors. Whether these are positive or negative um, depends on the medications that they're going to get. Um, for example, a triple negative tumor has a negative estrogen, negative progesterone, negative HER2 new responsiveness to the tumor. There's no, we don't have any targets or anti-estrogen targets for that. So that is somebody who's automatically going to get chemotherapy. If a patient has a positive HER2 new uh, protein on their on their tumor, the only target we have for that is a special type of chemo and immunotherapy. And so that patient's going to get chemotherapy. And so the most common receptor pattern is estrogen receptor positive, progesterone receptor positive, HER2 new negative. We don't know if those people, those patients need chemotherapy until after surgery. And there are some exceptions, some very large tumors or tumors that have spread to your lymph nodes in your armpit. Those patients tend to get chemotherapy as well. Is there ever need to receive those treatments prior to surgery? Yes. So when we, if, when we know the patient's going to need chemotherapy, we prefer it up front before surgery. It's called neoadjuvant chemotherapy. It's before surgery. So if I were to do surgery first and take the tumor out and then we give ke- chemotherapy to the patient, we have no clue if it's working. That's the only line that they're getting. But if we do it when the tumor is inside the inside the breast, inside the body, we have this kind of in vivo response to the chemotherapy. And we can see if it's shrinking or if it's growing. We can change the chemotherapy regimen if we need to. We can go straight to surgery. It gives the medical oncologist and me a lot more information on how the tumor is going to behave. That's really fascinating. <laughs> it's really fascinating to me because I'm thinking about back to microbiology and the Petri dish and, and killing the bacteria with the antibiotic. I love it. Okay. Well, tell me about success rates. And well, let's talk about the triple negative because that one seems really tough because if there's no targeted treatments available, and that's where science is really emerging, how do you treat that? So it depends on the size of the triple negative tumor. And so localized breast cancers, breast cancers that are just in the breast and they haven't spread to any lymph nodes, they have over a 90% survival rate. And that's including estrogen receptor positive patients and including triple negative. Once it spreads to your axillary lymph nodes, your survival rates start to decrease. And um, one of the things about triple negative tumors is that while it is a more aggressive tumor, it responds very well to chemotherapy and immunotherapy. And oftentimes, if we, get, if we give them the chemotherapy up front, we, we have surgery, we remove the tumor, what's left, and say if the chemotherapy killed all the tumor, we call that a pathologic complete response. That means the patient's prognosis has significantly improved from what it was before. And so it kind of depends on the, the size of the tumor and, and the localization of it. Mm. After you've had you've gone in through remission for a breast cancer, you talked about after a lumpectomy, you're still getting mammograms, and so you're having that screening. For those that have had the mastectomy, they're getting breast exams with palpable breast exams. Is there any specific imaging for them that they need to get each year, or is it that the recurrence is so low that 
with the palpable breast exam, that's all the screening you need. That's all the screening you need for after mastectomies, even if there's reconstructions, whether it's a a, a deep flap, which is D-I-E-P flap, or or or, or implants or going flat. Um, we don't have any evidence. Uh, with our National Comprehensive Cancer Cancer Network guidelines that say that we need to continue mammograms or MRIs in patients uh, who have reconstructed breasts. Okay. Well, speaking of uh, the cancer guidelines and the Cancer Commission, you're on the state uh, cancer commission here in Alaska, and you've practiced in other states as well. So are there any unique challenges that you have here to your surgery practice by virtue of being in Alaska that may you may not encounter in the lower 48? Alaska Anchorage has top-of-the-line specialists who treat breast cancer, and we have access to all the clinical trials. And so the the uh, evidence-based medicine done up here is outstanding. And in fact, some of the, um, we are doing some techniques here in Anchorage, such as contrast-enhanced mammograms that a lot of other cities, including where I've trained, um, don't don't have Mm -hmm. yet. And so, um, but one of the unique things, and we certainly have found workaways for this, is that we have a lot of patients from rural villages um, who have either don't easily have access to screening mammograms or it's that they have access, they just have to fly into town to, to do it and that could be that could be an issue. So sometimes those the patients who are more more rural pre- present with more advanced cancers. In addition to say a patient needs radiation, they need to be at the radiation center Monday through Friday for several weeks doing 10 to 15 minute appointments every single day. So if a patient lives out town, um, we have to arrange, um, you know, somewhere for the patient to stay. Fortunately, there's um, cancer nurse navigators at the hospitals. American Cancer Society can can help with uh, hotel costs and, and transportation uh, between all their appointments. That's right. I do see there's a lot of societies that are really helpful. Before we go, do you think there are any common myths about breast cancer or misunderstandings that you could help us uh, to understand better? Anything you'd like to address? Yeah, I have a couple that I hear pretty often in clinic. Um, One of them is that uh, underwires cause breast cancer. There was a 2014 study of roughly 1,500 women with breast cancer found no link between underwires and uh, in your bras and breast cancer. Um, another one I hear often is using aluminum uh, deodorants oh, yes. causes breast cancer. We don't have any evidence of that, and I and I encourage even my breast cancer patients undergoing treatment to continue to use their their deodorant. Mm-hmm. Um, and one more is that uh, you know consuming too much sugar causes breast cancer, and so there's a common myth that sugar feeds cancer and speed speed up its growth, it's like speed up the cancer's growth. Mm-hmm. So. All cells, whether cancerous or healthy, use sugar in their in their blood, called glucose, as fuel. And while cancer cells consume sugar more quickly than normal cells, we don't have any evidence that additional sugar consumption is linked to cancer. Thank you. I think all of those three myths are really important for us to hear. Thank you so much. Thank you. We are out of time today. So thank you to our expert, Dr. Sherry Johnson, for being with us. Thanks to our producer and audio engineer, Madeline Rose. You can find more information on this and previous programs on our website at alaskapublic.org. Let us know your thoughts or suggestions by emailing us at line1 at alaskapublic.org. 
This has been Line One, Your Health Connection. I'm your host, Dr. Jillian Woodruff. Thank you. Line One is a production of Alaska Public Media, which is solely responsible for its content. Views expressed are those of the host and participants and not necessarily those of Alaska Public Media, this station, or its underwriters. Learn more about Line One and listen online at alaskapublic.org. This is Alaska Public Media.